This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good to see everybody this morning. Thanks for coming. Um, so we'll work on a koan today. We'll continue our exploration of the Blue Cliff Record, and we'll work with case number 10 um, called Bokushu's Thieving Phony. And today I'll read the introduction, which was done by a master named Ingo, who compiled the Blue Cliff Record, and then followed that with the case itself, and then the verse by Master Secho. So the introduction to the case goes like this. Yes, yes. No, no. Seen in terms of combat... Each stands unconquered on his or her own pivotal point. Therefore it is said, If you turn upward, even Shakyamuni, Maitreya, Manjushri, Samantabhadra, the thousand and ten thousand holy ones, and all Zen masters under heaven will immediately choke back their breath and swallow their voices. If you turn downward, even maggots, gnats, and all creeping creatures emit a great light. Each one towering like a cliff of 10,000 fathoms. But when you turn neither upward nor downward, then how would you deal with it? If there is a rule, follow it. If there is no rule, follow an example. I will try to present one. Look. And now the case. Once, Bokushu asked a monk, Where did you come from? At once, the monk shouted, Kots! Bokushu said, Well, this old monk has been shouted or scolded by you with cuts. The monk shouted again, Kots! Bokushu said, after three or four shouts of cuts, then what? The monk was silent. Then Bokushu hit him, saying, you thieving phony. Uh, and then Secho's verse. Two cuts, three cuts. The great ones know how to act freely. If you say they ride on a tiger's head, they, mu they both must be blind. Who is blind at all? I will bring forth a case for everyone under heaven to see. So, let's begin with the introduction. It's quite dense. Uh, it begins with, yes, yes, no, no. You know, in Zen, these two words, if we really understand them, sum up the whole of the teaching. 
yesterday in the introduction to Zen class, we talked about the two main practices in our tradition, which are shikantaza, or just sitting, and koan practice. Just sitting is the practice of allowing everything to be as it is, including ourselves, which is quite difficult for us because most of us have a way of viewing ourselves as lacking something. And we see the world as also lacking something. But the practice of just sitting challenges this very core feeling inside of us. The feeling, again, that there is something that needs to be fixed. The world, or with us, or both. So in Shikantaza, the practice is this complete openness, a kind of a panoramic awareness, not grasping onto our preferences, one thing or another, but simply allowing things to be as they are. And through this practice, we come to express through the body and the mind the absolute perfection as this moment itself unfolds. It's really a recognition, and and this word is important, recognition. Not just an intellectual thought, but it's a recognition that there is not one thing, not one thing that is out of place. Even our feeling that things are out of place is not out of place. Another way of describing shikantaza, or just sitting, is with this one word, yes. Nothing is rejected. But there are very few people that actually understand this yes. This is partly why it's such a difficult practice, because the mind that most of us still are dominated by is the mind of preference. And with preferences, there is a no, not this. The mind that says yes to this and not that. But this is still not the yes of Shivantaza. To just sit means that there is only sitting. But again, to really understand what Shikantaza means is that it's not a me who is just sitting. There is just sitting. A recognition that this body, when this body sits, the whole universe sits. There is no other activity. Nothing else. Now, when a lot of people encounter shikantaza, or just sitting, and hear about this, this is very common in American Zen, 
what they come to feel about Zen practice is that it boils down to things just as they are. We hear this phrase quite a bit, things as they are. And while this is ultimately true, I would say that this is an incomplete understanding or picture of the Dharma. Things as they are can reinforce our delusion, our delusive mind states, our limited ideas. When we say that things are just as they are, there can be no need to change anything. And so we can risk really missing out on important discoveries about ourselves and the world. So the downside can be that we make, as my one of my teachers once said, a cozy little nest halfway up the mountain for ourselves in just sitting and practicing things just as they are. The other major practice in our Zen school is that of koan practice. And like the case for today, there's many of these uh, teachings that are direct pointers. They're not teaching stories. They're not metaphors. They're direct pointing. And the basis of the practice itself is inquiry, as you all know not settling for what we already understand. So koans have a power to shake us from our little nests and encourage us to go beyond what is known into the unknown. And so while shikantaza might be summed up with a yes, koan practice is a big no. Koans goad us to go deeper beyond metaphor and language and beyond what we think we know. And so the student taking up a koan must also become her own teacher, looking for what is most essential in each koan, discerning what's most important. And in that process, it is no, not this, No, not that. This isn't it. No, that's not it. Often our teachers help us with this process. My first teacher wouldn't say no. He always would instead say, keep going. Maybe a gentler form of no, not yet. Don't settle. There's more to discover. The Dharma is really unbelievably deep. And it's not just a matter of things as they are. Although, again, this is one aspect. In this way, koans can be, if they are not worked with skillfully by either the teacher or the student, can be discouraging. Because there is a no over and over again. That's the downside, possibly, to koan practice. They at times require a kind of dogged determination that isn't so easy to maintain over a long period of time. And so burnout 
can turn us away from the long process of discovery with koans if we're not careful. And ultimately, the no of koans point us to the yes of shikantaza. That's what they're trying to do. Yes, we are the whole universe. Yes, we are complete. Yes, the universe is even complete in the smallest thing. And yes, nothing is left out. And ultimately, Shikantaza points us to the no of koan. No, the world is not stagnant. No, the world is not about knowing. It's not about our ideas. It's not about this and not that. It's completely empty. And no, we will never fully understand it. The universe is never finished expressing herself. And no, we can always come to appreciate this more fully. No points to yes. Yes points to no. So even in this simple opening of Engo's introduction to this case, we have the whole of the teaching. He says, yes, yes, no, no. Seen in terms of combat, he says, each stands unconquered on his or her own pivotal point. We could say that each practice, whether it's koan, shikantaza, breath practice, what have you, each practice has its own integrity. People wonder if one practice is better than another. No. But I would say that each has a particular strength and a particular weakness. The practice of yes has its own integrity, and so does the practice of no. And usually the one we think that we need is maybe the one we ought to put aside. Because delusion is endless. But then again, sometimes we need to find that out for ourselves by making our own choices. So Master Engo goes on. He says, therefore, it is said that if you turn upward, even Shakyamuni... Maitreya, by the way, who is the Buddha of the future. Manjushri, who you know is the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Samantabhadra, the Bodhisattva of action. The 10,000 holy ones and all the Zen masters under heaven will immediately choke back their breath and swallow their voices. If you turn downward, even maggots, gnats, and all creeping creatures emit a great light. Each one towering like a cliff of 10,000 fathoms. We tend to think, oh yes, wisdom like that of Manjushri or Samantabhadra or Shakyamuni Buddha, the holy ones, that's what I want in my life. But Engo says that they all choke back their breath and swallow their voices. Even You could say, even the holy ones clam up in awe 
at the Dharma. Meanwhile, even maggots, gnats, emit a great light. I wish I wish I could feel that when I was when we have our fruit fly infestations over in the small cottage that we reside in. Even gnats are the full expression of the Dharma. The fundamental insight in Zen is to see that there is no great or small. Both yes and no are fundamentally empty. Up and down are fundamentally empty. Good and bad are fundamentally empty. We are fundamentally empty. Ingo says, continues, but when you turn neither upward nor downward, then how would you deal with it? That's a great question. How will you deal with it? How are you going to deal with your life when you don't know up from down, right from wrong, what to do, how to practice, how to distinguish holy from profane? Of course, this is where our practice has to function with this question, how do you deal with it? This is where, uh, where really where the rubber meets the road in Zen. Functioning is where the practice is really at. You know, silent sitting is relieving in a sense. Of course, insight is important. But we still need to function. And so our practice has to come back to how will we deal with it? How we have to deal, how do we deal with it. All of you can fill in the blank on what it is. And when we encounter that very point in our life, that's where the practice comes to life. And we encounter that point in this very case, the koan itself, which again as a reminder goes like this. Bokushu asked a monk, where did you come from? And the monk shouted, Kots. And Bokushu said, this old monk has been scolded by you with a Kots. The monk shouted again, Kots. Bokushu said, after three or four shouts, then what? The monk was silent. So then, Bokushu hit him and said, you thieving phony. So first we have this question of where did you come from? We have to be careful because in Zen, what seems like an ordinary question might actually have deeper meaning. Teachers you know, often throw out these baited hooks to see what kind of fish they can catch and how their students will respond. And so this is a Zen standard. Where did you come from? What is he getting at? What does that really mean? Where did you come from? 
And so this monk responds with a shout, a cuts, or you could say, Muh! coming from no place, no place. There, that no that we talked about earlier. There is no place that I come from. I mean, really think about it for a second. Where, where did you start? Where did you start? Where did you actually come from? Where, where did you begin? It's a good koan. Where did you begin? In the absolute, is there any location? Is there any beginning point? I mean, I was born in Washington, D.C. at Holy Cross Hospital. I spent my childhood in Laurel, Maryland. I made my way to Rochester, New York as a young man to begin Zen training. But cuts, which is this traditional term in Zen, cuts through all of that. It's not that it's unimportant, you see. But Zen teachers um, have the Dharma in mind, not personal history. And yet we have to be careful because sometimes we can get too much into Zen and think that the very question put out there by a Zen teacher is a kind of trap or has some kind of special meaning or teaching, some hidden agenda. This is quite common. I remember... The first time I went to a breakfast with my Zen teacher, we went to a diner together. And by the way, they had, they had great pancakes, I remember that. But being an idealistic young guy, I was so nervous with him. I imagined that every move he made had some sort of secret meaning. It was kind of strange. You see this on Facebook, too. There's a lot of Zen groups on Facebook. And there's this one that's quite popular now. And the moderators keep cutting people off from doing Zen responses. You know, getting a little too zen a little, little too uh, pretentious in their Zen answers as people participate in the discussion. Like, can't we just have a normal conversation, you know, without getting all Zen on us? You know, as Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So sometimes, where did you come from is just, no, really, I want to know. Where, where did you, where were you? Were you just at the grocery store? Like, where did you come from? Sometimes the secret meaning is just the thing itself. That's what we often miss. I often remind students not to leave out the ordinary from the spiritual. In our search for something special, we often walk right past the specialness of the ordinary. And that sets into motion a kind of waiting game or a kind of... uh, 
Well, it's like, no wonder you can't pass your koan because you're walking right by it constantly. No wonder you're not having insight into yourself because you're not looking directly at what is here. So Bokushu says, okay, well, you shouted. This old monk, meaning himself, you know, has been taught this Zen lesson by you. I see where you're coming from. But the monk again shouts, Cuts! Move! So what is he doing here? And this is, is he just doing the Zen thing? Is he outside of his own experience, kind of parroting what he's heard before? You know, sometimes people hear and read a lot about Zen and then come to Doksan and somehow get it in their head that shouting or remaining silent is the Zen thing to do. And sometimes it is, actually. Sometimes it is. But sometimes there's that kind of imitating that is actually what's happening. So is that what this monk is doing? This is one of the important points that when we sit with this koan that we have to work on. Where is this monk coming from in his practice? The important thing about practice is to be authentic. That's the most important thing. And we can see as we begin or continue our Zen training how there are layers of inauthenticity that get in the way. Layers of subtle, more and more more subtle inauthenticity. I remember one time going to Doksan with my teacher, and for some reason I thought it would be a good idea to go into Doksan and stand on my head. So I did. It was in a sashin in Florida, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But I knew on some level, I was fed up with just talking in Doksan. It was, became meaningless. There had to be something deeper. I felt I needed a break from the pattern, that self-conscious conversation of Doksan. And I needed to find some kind of freedom from that, from my worry and anxiety about going into Doksan. And intuitively, I knew I needed to break out of words, beyond words, beyond this constriction I felt. And in that moment, I remember feeling so free for a second or two. It wasn't any kind of great insight I had, but it was authentic. And so sometimes we just need to break free in ways that we hadn't given ourselves permission 
to do in our life. My teacher, of course, was cool as a cucumber, and he just watched and then rang his bell and said, keep going. Would it work to keep standing on my head in Doksan? No. At some point, what feels free can be a canned kind of response. Less than authentic, more of a script. So Bokushu, Bokushu inquires to this point. After three or four shouts, then what? Another awesome question. Then what? Isn't that, that's an awesome question. Then what? What happens when you go off the script? When you don't have a script anymore in your life? What happens when all of your planned responses don't work? This is why planning doksans is, has limited value. I mean, sometimes we have to a little bit. I used to do that all the time. What I'll do is I'll go into doksan and I'll say this. And, or I'll do that. And then I imagine my teacher, he'll say either this or he'll say that. If he says this, then I'll do that. And if he says that, I'll do this. And then, and it kind of becomes this huge map in the head. Meanwhile, we're not present What happens to our ability to meet the moment as it unfolds? What then? Such a great response by Bokushu. After three or four times, what then? What happens to us after trying so many times? Do we give up? Uh, Do we try harder? Do we become self-critical? That's a big one. I'm a horrible person. You can see the monk might go there if he was in a certain state of mind when Boku Shu says, now what, come on. Hopefully not. The old Japanese saying that I know some of you know comes to mind, seven times down, eight times up. Meaning that Perseverance is a key to life. It's a key to Zen practice. Can we take the life feedback that comes our way and then regroup quickly? And if we do regroup, how do we respond? That's important. Again, even when we have insight into our true nature, the practice is, how does that insight function? Does it function freely? In this case, the monk was silent. What was the meaning of his silence? This is another point for us to understand in the koan, for the student, the working on it, would have to answer. What is 
this silence about? It could be the silence of being caught off guard by Bokushu. After three or four shouts, then what? Well, I've run out of answers. So, silence. Could be that. But it also could be a silence that even cuts through cuts or moo. It could be true silence. The silence of nothing. The Buddha was once asked, I don't ask for words, I don't ask for no words. And the Buddha just sat silent. But if it was this kind of silence, why then did Bokushu hit him, saying, you thieving phony? Sounds like criticism. Like, yeah, you know, you're just putting on a good show with this response that you're making. But then again, like this back and forth that we're exploring. But then again, the old masters had this strange habit of always prodding their students to go deeper, even when they were on the ball. There's a saying that we have in Zen that even Shakyamuni is only halfway there. Meaning we can always go deeper in practice. That's the no. Um, somebody asked on Tuesday night during our discussion group about this line from a book that we're reading called Everyday Zen, where the author was talking about watching a documentary about bears. And as she's describing it, she's saying that the mama bear, after teaching her cubs all the life skills that they needed, would chase the bears off, the young cubs off, and chase them up a tree, and then would leave them. And so she imagined how fearful the cubs must feel to be abandoned by their mother. And then she says that, that it's a reminder that the path to freedom involves being terrified at times. You know, life is sometimes very scary. But we don't need to pretend that it's not. She says that we all want to hold on to a piece of mama bear. But to have freedom, we have to get kicked out of the nest. And I would say that this action of mama bear is love itself. Mama bear isn't cruel. It kind of reminded me of also this webcam thing that I saw a couple years ago of these, this department of 
I don't remember. It was a state park, maybe. And they had a, a camera, a webcam that was pointed in an osprey nest. And you could just log on to the website and watch the osprey come back to its nest. And it was right there in the nest. So you could see the little baby osprey as they hatch. And as they become little chicks and the mama would come back with food. And then one time, as people are watching this on the webcam, mama's gone and you see these little chicks and one of them goes over to the other one and starts pecking at it because it's the weaker chick. And then mama comes back and just starts feeding the healthier one. And people were outraged. They would, they were apparently emailing and chatting in the box on the website. Somebody do something. This is unfair. Somebody go climb up that nest and, you know, stop this from happening. Right? But that's, that's the way things are. What seems cruel might just be life presenting itself in full technicolor. Can we see that? Do we have to like it? No. You know, but there it is. So maybe Bokushu, this hit, is not cruel. Maybe it's not so much about the lack of this monk's response, but more of encouragement. Keep going. Keep going in your practice. Go deeper. This is the great no and the great yes. The great no of the ever-changing, ever-evolving universe. And the great yes of the ever-present universe as it is. And what we want is irrelevant. The whole universe is presenting itself. So, why don't we end with Engo's, or Secho's verse. He says, two cuts and three cuts. The great one knows how to act freely. If you say they ride on a tiger's head, they both must be blind. Who is blind at all? I will bring forth a case for everyone under heaven to see. So I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, but two cuts, three cuts. This is the shouts, of course. He says the great ones know how to act freely. So this question of what now? Okay, you shouted me down. Okay, now what? Life presents itself in a way that we didn't expect. Now what? What are you going to do? This is Zen training. What are you going to do with your life? Do you clam up? Do you get self-critical? Do you give up? Do you 
push too hard? That's another one. What do you do? How do you, how do you act freely? The great ones, he says, know how to act freely. But then he says, if you, if they ride on a tiger's head, they both must be blind. This is a strange reference, but very quickly, what this means is, when you charge forward without any control, you're blind. In other words, when you, you know, people often keep doing the same thing over and over again in their life. And what's that old saying? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting something different to happen. That's charging blindly. That's charging, riding on a tiger's head. And then, who is blind at all? It's really putting it back on us. Who is blind? This question that is so important for us to explore in our life. Who is it that gets thrown around? Who is it that responds? As we said yesterday in our introduction to Zen class, it can be helpful to sit with who. And then he says, I will bring forth a case for everyone under heaven to see. So he's talking, of course, about this koan. But you could also say that every moment we have a case for us to bring forth, to respond to. Every moment we have a choice. How are we going to act freely? How do we act freely? How do we make our Zen come to life? That's the important point that these cases point to.